Well, we all uh, love stories of transformation. I shared a little bit about that with the uh, children this morning, uh, the transformation of caterpillars into butterflies. And there's lots of different stories of that. Children's literature is full of those kinds of stories when, uh, when animals or people become something different or at least mostly something better than they once were. These kinds of transformations show up in lots of different kinds of children's stories, um, Pinocchio is maybe the most well-known one where a wooden puppet wants to become a real boy and, uh, and eventually actually at the end of that series he does. Um, another one would be over Christmas. Our children took an interest in watching and they watched it when our children liked something. They watch it over and over again and they, over the Christmas season they enjoyed watching The Velveteen Rabbit where a, a, a stuffed bunny eventually turns into a real bunny. And of course, C.S. Lewis, if you're into Narnia and those sort of things, there's all sorts of transformations in that series as well. Well, all of those transformation stories fall into the realm of fantasy literature. They draw out our imaginations. There's something that, uh, that draws us to those sort of things. But, but story writers use, use those kinds of images because we are pulled in. They pull us in. Stories where something happens to change people into something different. Now, I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but we might be drawn into those kinds of things, maybe because of a, of a dissatisfaction with who we are and a desire to be something different than what we've been made to be. Well, the Bible is one big story that deals with transformation and change. Only the Bible is not fantasy. The Bible is a real-life story about the possibility of transformation. And the writer of this book, and the main actor, the protagonist, if we want to put it in terms of literature of this book, is the very creator God. Ironically, the unchanging God. God created everything perfect. But we know the beginning of the story where humankind rebelled against the creator, not very long after creation itself, at the very beginning of the book, at the very beginning of human history. But the whole rest of the book is about how God has acted and is acting to bring about the most necessary transformation, the transformation of sinners into saints. So change and, and conversion is part of the entire storyline of the Bible. The Bible records God's changing people's names, for instance. He changes Abram to Abraham. He changes Jacob to Israel. He changes Simon to Peter. He changes Saul to Paul. Uh, Radical transformations are a conceptual theme as well in the Bible. Ezekiel prophesies about changing a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And then in the very next chapter, he sees a vision of of a valley, a pile of dead bones. And those bones are changed miraculously, by the Spirit of God into a, into a great army, a great living army. And that foreshadows what the New Testament calls the transformation from death to life, or darkness to light. Paul writes and talks about people as a new creation, where the old has passed away and the new has come. And then God makes Radical changes in, the, in those through whom he does great things. He takes, uh, and this is all over the place, so just a couple of examples. He takes an insignificant farmer or son of a farmer named Gideon. 
and brings a great deliverance of his people from the oppression of, uh, of a foreign nation. He takes a, a ruddy shepherd boy named David and turns him into King David, the direct descendant of the Messiah. And we already mentioned Saul became Paul, the guy that uh, went from someone who threatened to stamp out the spread of Christianity to becoming the chosen instrument of Jesus to spread Christianity to the Gentiles. All of that transformation sets the stage from the great, for the greatest transformation of all. God transforms himself in a matter of speaking. God comes to earth as a baby, as a human, in the person of his eternal son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is God incarnate. And when Jesus comes to earth, that same theme follows him. He's a man who changes people. This is all supernatural change that could only be attributed to God. And, and he signifies that kind of supernatural change through miracles or what the Gospel of John calls signs. And as we get to the end of this first week of Jesus' ministry, this is day seven now, Jesus performs here his first sign. That first week consisted of John the Baptist paving the way for Jesus and identifying him as the Lamb of God. And that immediately um, made one of, or two of John's followers, people who were disciples of John, become disciples of Jesus. And those followers then connected Jesus with three others. One of Jesus' priorities during that first week then was to make disciples, which then becomes one of our priorities as followers of Christ. But his other main priority during that first week was to give some kind of indication of who he really was and of what he would really come to do. And one of the things that characterizes the person and the ministry of Jesus, one of the ways that Jesus shows us his glory, is in his power of transformation. His ability to radically change things and people. And that brings us to John 2. And I want to read for us this morning, and I encourage you to follow along and then to leave your Bible open there. Verses 1 to 11. John chapter 2, the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, 
and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. Jesus manifested, Jesus displayed his glory. Those are the words that sort of uh, bookend this study that we've been doing for the month of January. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, in the middle of that verse, it said, we have seen his glory. So that's really what this first week of ministry has been all about. It's Jesus beginning to display his glory to the world. We see his glory as he calls his, his students, his disciples. And now we see his glory as he does his first sign, as he changes water to wine. Now, just a word about the nature of a sign. The Gospel of John never calls Jesus' miracles, miracles. He always calls them signs. And signs are things that point to something. If you see a direction sign as you're driving, it points you to something else. As you, as you drive down Highway 13 West, before you get to Highway 2, before you get to the, the, the QE2, there are, there are signs that say if you want to go to Edmonton, you have to take the first right that goes to the north. If you're heading towards Red Deer, then you have to take that second right turn, which then loops around and, and you'll start to head south. Well, what Jesus does here in this section is described as a sign. Verse 11, this is the first of his signs. Or this, the first of his signs Jesus did in, in Cana, at Cana in Galilee. It's pointing to, to something different. It's pointing to something in the Bible. It always points to something greater. And so as we think about this miracle, we want to be asking what does this indicate about Jesus? What is God trying to direct us to through these signs, through this particular sign? And I'm going to suggest that it has to do with Jesus' ability to transform things. Jesus' ability to radically change things, his ability to make old things new, his ability to make inferior things superior, his ability to change people, his ability to bring about transformation. His ability to bring about conversion. This is a sign pointing toward the transforming power of Jesus. So let's look at what happens here. And then we'll double back and look at what this teaches us about, uh, about how Jesus absolutely and totally changes what came before. So the setting, or this scene here, has Jesus being invited to a wedding. And now he's there along with his disciples, and those disciples are likely the five that were following him by now. Andrew, uh, John, probably, even though he's unnamed, John is probably talking about himself as the other disciple there, and Peter, and Philip, and Nathaniel. And it says there in chapter 2, verse 1, that the mother of Jesus was there. Now the fact that Mary was there, and that she had some kind of role in the preparations, and, and that Jesus was invited, tells us that this might have been a wedding of people that Jesus might have known before as he grew up. It could have been some of his childhood friends. It might have even been a family wedding. But then we see that an issue comes up there at the wedding. It says in verse 3 that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus comes to him and says, they have no wine. So that's the problem. And it's a bigger problem in that culture than it might be today. They couldn't just 
you know, find out that they're out of wine and send someone over to, to you know, grab another case of, of wine bottles. Well, number one, and it's even more than just that, that they just couldn't get it. Number one, it's a problem because running out of wine was a huge embarrassment to the groom's family. Ancient Near Eastern culture, and it's still like this in the Middle East, is a culture of honor and shame. We don't quite live in that kind of culture, so we have to kind of transport our minds over to that, to that um, sort of context. People in that day and age always wanted to do what's honorable and wanted to avoid anything that would bring shame. Shame to their name, shame to their reputation, shame to their family. And one of the things that brought shame to a groom and his family was to run out of food or drink at a wedding. Here, custom is that a bride's family, those customs always change, but the custom is that a bride's family pays for the wedding. Well, back then it was the opposite. The bridegroom was ultimately responsible. And so to run out of something at the reception, here it might be an inconvenience for a little bit, but we'd eventually forget about it and, and move on. But back then, it would be seen as a huge fail. And they would not forget. It could make for a lifetime of shame. There's even been some evidence to suggest that the family could be subject to legal action. If, if, if that happened, if they ran out of something. And the legal action was because of their failure to provide adequate hospitality. Or reasonable hospitality. But the biggest problem was that it was an issue of honor and shame. And this had the potential for a lifetime of shame and embarrassment for the family of the groom. And so when Mary approaches Jesus, this is no small thing on a practical level. They have no wine is more than just a statement of fact. It's a statement of urgency. That's what makes me think that Mary was connected to the groom's side of the family in particular in some way. She might have even been helping to organize the the catering part of the wedding. And this is all part of the build-up to the main event. In that culture, they would have had the banquet first and then the ceremony. So there was no doubt in that whole scene a, a bit of panic. That was the situation when Mary came to Jesus. And of course, the rest of the story, and this isn't a story, this is a historical event, has Jesus solving this seemingly insurmountable dilemma in a most amazing way by turning water into wine. Jesus meets the practical need of the moment. But remember, this is a sign. And Jesus always does things very purposefully and strategically. There's actually much more here than meets the eye. Jesus uses this occasion and this dilemma and this miracle to say something about himself and about why he came. Jesus, the rabbi, as he's named by his disciples, or the teacher, uses this as a teaching moment for his disciples and for us. He uses this to change people's thinking about who he is. So let's go back now and look at some of these details. Number one, we see that Jesus teaches that he is an altogether different kind of son. In the interaction there between Jesus' mother and Jesus, Jesus will totally reorient her thinking about who he really is. 
as he makes a transition into a new identification from this point forward. Before this, he was the the dutiful and perfect son for his mother. And I just say his mother here because it might be very well that Joseph has died by this time. We don't read anything about him being there, and and he doesn't show up anywhere, actually, in the whole life of Jesus. And, And so we read about his brothers, we read about his sister, we read about his mother, but never anything about Joseph. And so not only was Jesus Mary's obedient son, but he also likely provided for her as the oldest son, provided for her family. He was probably very practically helpful. And so it was natural here at this wedding for Mary to come to Jesus and says, and, and, and say to him, we need some help here. Now, she also likely remembered Jesus' birth, thinking back to that time with the angels and the star and all those miraculous things around his birth. So she could have had that kind of expectation as well. But in the end, we really don't know what, his, what her spe- expectations were. Anything we say would be speculation. We don't know what she expected by going to Jesus. It just doesn't say. But look how Jesus responds. Verse, verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That's a little bit of a strange response, isn't it? It kind, it kind of sounds abrupt. We might even say it sounds disrespectful. What's he saying? Well, it's actually maybe not as abrupt as it sounds. It was actually quite a polite way of, of addressing a lady. Kind of like if we call a lady ma'am, something like that. Yet, the fact is, Jesus uses this term of respect when he could have just called her mother. Why, why doesn't he call her mother here? Why, why not? Well, Jesus is making a point. And his point is that the relationship between he and Mary was changing. It was different now. It wasn't the typical mother-son relationship anymore. Once he starts his ministry, Jesus is first and foremost the son of man, not the son of Mary. His first allegiance is to his heavenly father, not to his earthly parents. Now, it's not that Jesus was suddenly disrespectful toward Mary. In fact, when he's on the cross, he, you remember, he, he deliberately makes sure that Mary is taken care of. But Jesus is now taking his cues primarily from his heavenly father. It's obedience to his heavenly father that wins the day for him from this point forward. John eight twenty eight, he says, I do not, nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. So this signals a change in relationship. Jesus is saying that just because his mother tells him to do something, he's not ultimately bound by what she says. He is bound by the will of his Father. And according to his heavenly Father, Jesus' hour, referring to the cross, had not yet come. The time to reveal publicly that he's the Son of God wasn't now. And so even though Jesus does perform the miracle... Here, at this point, no one really knows about it, except the servants, kind of, and the disciples. And he doesn't do it because his mother wanted him to. He does it as a sign that points to some greater purpose. I'll just give one point of application for us on this 
first section, and, and that is that if you're a Christian, it's a reminder that we are first and foremost children of God, sons and daughters of God. Our, our physical family, while very important, is not necessarily our forever family. Jesus makes that point a couple of times in his ministry. He gives his disciples and followers a higher place of importance than his physical family. And that's because they make up the family of God. So yes, we want to affirm, care for your family, provide for your family, honor your parents, love your spouse. But recognize the importance as well of your spiritual family. Those brothers and sisters who are your fellow adoptees into God's family. This is why the, um, the, the God, then family, then church um, scale of priority sometimes gets pushed a little bit too far. All I want to say here is don't separate them too quickly. Don't have a, a, a minimalist view of the church, of your brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, this passage is about transformation. It signifies that Jesus' allegiance has shifted from his earthly mother to his heavenly father. Uh, heavenly father. He gives his mother a, a, a little bit of a gentle corrective here. Yet Jesus does go ahead. And, and he turns the water into wine anyways, just as... You know, she sort of makes this plea. She didn't make the plea that way, but she just said, we've got a shortage of wine here, and Jesus actually does deal with it. He miraculously solves the they-have-no-wine-presenting problem. But he's pointing at something much greater, and that is that Jesus provides an altogether different kind of purification. Mary, for her part, in verse 5, shows faith in Jesus' resourcefulness and tells a servant to do just what Jesus tells them. But look at verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And so Jesus says to his servants, fill the jars with water, and they fill them up to the brim. And he says to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they did, they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he says to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. That was a custom. They'd, 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 they'd bring the good stuff first, and once people were drunk, they, couldn't, they didn't know what they were drinking anyways, then they got the bad stuff. But here, this master is saying, Jesus, or uh, this bridegroom has brought the opposite. He says, you have kept the good wine until now. At some point in these five verses, Jesus turns the water into wine. It really doesn't tell us when he does that or how he does that. Uh, and most of the people don't even know what happened or that Jesus actually even did it. The servants know, but they really don't respond in any way. The master of the feast, this probably would have been the head caterer, maybe even the MC, he doesn't know. I can only imagine that the bridegroom would have been in shock when this master comes up to him and says, oh, thanks for keeping the good wine until the end. The guy commends him for saving the best wine. Now the bridegroom would have known that he, he, he didn't do that at all. He just knew that somehow, some way, someone saved his bacon. He was spared the shame. And so whatever Jesus did here, all we know is that where at one time there was no wine, now there was not only wine, but there was lots of wine, and it was not just regular wine, it was good wine. 
There's quantity and there's quality. Jesus provided, and he provided in abundance, and he provided with excellence. It really just points to his overflowing grace, doesn't it? But it signifies some other things too. Verse 6 says that Jesus told the servants to use six stone water jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now we have to remember here that Jews in that day were big into ritual. And they were especially meticulous about ritual purification. You can read about that in in Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, just a a parenthetical um, commentary there. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining dining couches. Yeah, and the, even the furniture they had to wash. And so for this wedding, those water jars would have been used to make sure everyone's hands were clean before they came to the wedding feast. Well, Jesus tells the servants to fill those jars with water. And they fill them to the brim. I think that little detail is there to tell us that nothing else was added. This isn't any, some kind of sleight of hand trick. It's supernatural. But the fact that they were jars used for ritual purification is a, are a sign that Jesus will replace all those rituals and will provide a way that is more effective and, and an inward purification from the uncleanness of sin. Not only would he replace that Jewish custom with something better, he would provide a better and more complete kind of cleansing. It's interesting here that the jars that were used for bathing would become jars used for drinking. The better in this case is that he changes water into wine. And not only wine, but good wine, the best wine. And not only good wine, but lots of it. Enough probably to last another week. Wine, actually, in other places in the Bible, the Old Testament, especially in some of the prophecies, is a symbol of the, of the future promises that would come to Israel and how they would celebrate with joy. And, and, and with, when they celebrate with joy, joy, it usually included wine. Amos 9, verses 13 and 14 is one of those places. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. But the sign here is that in Jesus we have someone that will provide ultimate purification. And he does, doesn't he? When that hour would come. He does it on the cross. Right now his hour of complete purification had not yet come here in John chapter 2. But when that hour came he did provide provide a uh, a perfect purification. He willingly, in obedience to the Father, shed his innocent blood to atone for and to purge away the sins of all those who would ever repent and trust in him. That's what Jesus would come to do. And this miracle here is pointing ahead to that sacrifice. If you rely on the perfect blood of Jesus to provide cleansing for you, What Jesus did during his hour can be applied to you. We've all sinned against the holy God and God's justice and God's holiness demand that all sins against him are punishable 
by death. And Jesus came to take that penalty for us if we turn away from our sins in sorrow and trust in what Jesus did on that cross. If you do that, your sins will be forgiven. And you will be pure in the sense that you are free from the punishment of sin. This is really grace upon grace, as he says earlier in chapter 1. In this, the glory of Jesus is manifested, is displayed. Well, this miracle points to and produces one more transformation, and we see that there in verse 11. Uh, For some people at that wedding, this miracle just flew right past them. They didn't even notice. Some of them might have thought it was a neat trick by someone who they didn't know. Some might have wondered, but they were just happy because there was more wine. So they went on with the feast. But there was one group who understood, at least in part, what was going on and were changed. Again at verse 11, this is this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And look at that last sentence. And his disciples believed him. One group that we don't really read anything about other than they were there at the beginning and And then we see this at the end. There's one group that observed what was going on and the disciples believed in him. In this miracle, this sign, Jesus produces an altogether different response. It's a response of faith. A response of belief in the power and in the person of Jesus. Those five disciples still didn't totally understand who Jesus was, but this was definitely another step in that direction. But all of this change really points to a transformation that God sovereignly brings about in the person of Jesus. This was a sign that Jesus performed precisely so that his followers would believe in him. This is why John wrote this gospel. Way at the almost end of the gospel of John in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, including now this miracle here in John chapter 2, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus wants to change you and to change me. Jesus wants to transform you and me. Another word for change and transform, as I already mentioned earlier, is to convert. Jesus wants to make sure that we are converted, regenerated. There's an interesting progression here in John 1 and 2. In verse 14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Now in this, God didn't change, Jesus didn't change, but God became something different. God became flesh. And here in John 2 verse 9, it talks about the water now become wine through the power of Jesus. And that theme pervades John, only it starts applying now to people. Living water will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life in chapter 4. A paralyzed man becomes well in chapter 5. And on it goes. Through the sovereign act of Jesus, people become something different. Something better than what they once were. 
Jesus takes what is bad and makes it good. Jesus takes what is ugly and makes it beautiful. Jesus takes what is broken and makes it complete. Jesus takes what is dark and gives light. Jesus takes what is dead and gives life. And that kind of transformation can happen as people believe in him. If you don't believe in Jesus, I hope this miracle produces in you a miracle of transformation, a miracle of conversion in your life. And for you that already believe, I hope that through this sign, that through the study of the first week of Jesus, his ministry, that you have seen his glory. And as you behold his glory, my prayer is that it would increase your faith in Christ, that it would increase your devotion to Christ, and that it would increase collectively our worship and our exaltation of Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do want a passage like this to increase the depth of our worship and our exaltation of who Jesus is. To help increase our understanding now that we have seen him more clearly. These signs, Lord, I pray that these signs would help us to understand who Jesus is and what he has done in more depth. We are We want to affirm this morning again that we love your word, that we love your truth. We want to thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're we're so thankful that through your son we have been changed. We have been made new. We have been made pure. We have, as it says in the next chapter, been born again. And like that water that became wine, this new birth is a miracle. It is nothing less than that. You have made what is impossible for us to accomplish possible through the accomplishments of your Son. And for that, we praise you and we honor you. We thank you for allowing us to see the glory and the radiance of Jesus, the precious Lamb of God, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.